Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every one of us every single day. We are hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, and I am joined by Dr. David Kipper and Anna Vicino, as I always am. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. Likewise, doing great. Happy to see you. Listen, we've got a podcast. There's not much more excitement than that, except for this. Today, we're going to be talking about laxatives and dementia, as well as what happens if you stop taking Ozempic or any of those kinds of drugs. Also, and this just happened, there's now a blood test apparently for concussions and very interesting. They just did a double lung transplant and, and we've got a caller who wants to talk about that and transplants in general. But let's start, David, with the first thing. Laxatives and dementia don't seem to go together because one is down there and one is up here. What's the connection to that? And why all of a sudden? Well, it's a good question, Peter. And it's actually a chicken and an egg argument. But last month in the Journal of Neurology, they came out with the statistic. There's a 51% increase uh, risk for all-cause dementia, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, in people that use laxatives regularly. And it's worse, in fact, if you use two kinds of laxatives. There are two kinds. There's a stimulating and an osmotic laxative. The stimulating laxatives are those that stimulate the colon to move faster. And the osmotic laxatives are those that put water into the colon to help things slip down the chute oh. a little easier. Okay. And if people are using two, at least two of those, different types, there's a greater than 90% association with dementia. This is really an interesting association. We don't know if this is cause and effect, but we don't know if the laxative causes the dementia or the dementia causes laxative use. But here's one way the laxatives can cause dementia. First of all, they change the gut microbia. So the microbiome, which we've talked about many times, is made up of all these different bacteria, viruses, fungus, it's all these microorganisms. And when you use a laxative, it changes the microbiome. So in disrupting the microbiome, you're also disrupting that connection between the gut and the brain. We've established very clearly that there is a communication between our gut and our brain. It tells you when you're full, right? Well, a lot of things. It not only regulates your eating, but it also regulates the number, amount of neurotransmitters that you make. It, it affects your insulin production. It, it oh. affects Anna. It converts uh, thyroid hormone into active thyroid hormone. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. So not only does it create a change in the microbiome and then its effects, one of those effects, by the way, creating neurotoxins, toxins that are produced because of these bacterial and viral colonies changing. These are called TMAOs. Don't ask me what that stands for, but TMAOs are toxic to the brain, uh, and they increase blood clotting, vascular inflammation, atherosclerosis. There's also an association with the laxatives. Um, they slow the production of serotonin. When this microbial constitution is changed, there's less serotonin produced, and serotonin is the neurotransmitter that controls the movement of the gut. So with less serotonin, there's more constipation. Wait, they also laxative is supposed to be helping constipation, but it's actually if if it's even helping it at the moment, it's making it worse long term because it's messing with your serotonin. 
Yes, because again, its effect on the microbiome mm. is creating a change in the constitution of what makes that microbiome and what makes a microbiome determines how much serotonin and dopamine and other transmitters you have in your brain. Also, the chronic use of these laxatives creates some uh, inflammatory changes to the mucosa or the lining of the colon. And one of the things that can happen there is that you can lose electrolytes, specifically sodium. And if you have low sodium, you're going to have cognitive changes. Wow. So if we flip this discussion and, and ask, well, how can dementia create constipation? Dementia can create constipation because if you are having problems with your memory, uh, you're going to forget to eat. In, in the right way. You're going to stop eating fibered food. You're going to stop hydrating. Your eating patterns change. And therefore, all of these issues are going to create the same kind of problems ultimately in the way you can move your bowel. The foods that we can use to improve constipation uh, by softening the stools, this is going to be music to <laughs> some people's ears, coffee, wine, beer, and cigarettes. I've had them so, all in the last five minutes. So Wait, hit that list. Wine, beer. Beer, coffee, wine, cigarettes. I'm cigarettes. constipated. I'm going to a ball game with some friends. I mean, what, really? That's well, Now shocking. we know who our sponsors are for this podcast, but also <laughs> Big Laxative is going to come after us. If you walk into a wow. bar, you better reserve your spot in the bathroom because it's Pretty much, this is what's I'm going, going to down. survey. I'm going to bars this weekend and yelling, who's blocked up in here? I want to see the percentage of people at bars that are smoking. I've never been blocked up. You know, somebody's <laughs> with a cigarette in their mouth. That is wild, David. Yeah. That's, in, that's unbelievable. It's like a Woody. Remember Sleeper, the Woody Allen movie where he predicted everything they yeah. tell you that is bad is going to be good and everything yeah. is good, good is going to be. You're going to die early from all this stuff, but you're going to be regular as, as can be. So I got a question for you. When I look at these studies, they're self-reporting studies, so you wonder just how blocked up people are. But what causes the constipation in the first place? Because if you're talking about dementia, you don't know if this person would have had the dementia anyway if they didn't take the laxative. How do they? How do they do that? How do they, um, you know, take that into consideration? I always wonder with these studies. That is a basic question to this conversation. Mm. What else causes constipation? Well, thyroid disease can do this. Okay. Serotonin deficiencies do this. Uh. We've heard of IBS, right? Irritable sure. bowel syndrome. And there's two types. There's a constipation type and a diarrhea type. People that have too little serotonin in their brain chemistry are constipated. Wow. And people that have either the right amount or an excess they can get the diarrhea. So constipation is genetic. There's a genetic basis, basically. Yes. yes. There you go. Absolutely. It sounds like everything comes back to we need to take better care of our gut microbiome. Everything is going to be about our microbiome. I mean, we're going to start treating people with transplanting microbiome for things like diabetes, things like weight. Peter, we've talked about this several times. Yeah, the fecal transplant we talked about I feel like ages ago. We talked ago. about it on an earlier episode. Go back yep, and listen yep. to the episode about the fecal transplant, everybody. Yeah. I mean, but we, years plug, ago, we Peter. started talking about it and people laughed about it, whatever, but you're putting healthy into, into not healthy and it balances the, the microbiome. That's pretty wild. Can I ask you also, David, with the microbiome, and then we can move on, when they, when they give you product like uh, to take for the, the, the microbiome, 
Does that probiotics. Stuff, yeah, probiotics. How much probiotic a pill? I mean, we've had this discussion before too. People are running out to buy probiotics. Are there are there super probiotics that really do work that have so much, um, I guess, good stuff in there for your microbiome that can make a difference? Or are people wasting their money on a lot of these products? This is a conversation that I have often in my office because when you prescribe an antibiotic, someone says, well, I'm going to take probiotics, which is fine. But to answer your question, you need so many colonies of these microbes that you can't possibly put all these into one pill. So it sounds like a good idea. It is a good idea. But I really haven't come across a probiotic that I thought really protects people when they're on these antibiotics or other treatments. But eating, how about eating those yogurts with the probiotic uh, cultures in them stuff helps with constipation? It helps if you like yogurt, but I don't think it's going to make much difference <laughs> with respect to the microbiome. But there is, interestingly, there's an antibiotic that we use called Zyfaxin. And Zyfaxin was first used in people that have had ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, where their microbiome was really upside down and their mucosal lining in the intestinal tract was really wrecked. And this is an antibiotic that stays within the gut, so it doesn't mm. get absorbed systemically, so there are no side effects to this. And it actually is strong enough to affect the microbiome. Wow. So people, for instance, that are traveling to other countries and are getting different water and food sources, meaning different bacteria and different other microbes, this is a good thing to travel with. You should ask your doctor about traveling with Zyfaxin. And if you're on chronic antibiotics, Zyfaxin's a good thing. It's not cheap and most insurances don't cover it. So it's not easily uh, accessible, but it is something that's out there that, that works. This is your insurance company. I just need to know what's the one thing that you need the most. Yeah, we don't, we don't, that's, we don't cover that. So I'm lucky. I don't, I don't have a constipation issue or diarrhea issue. I don't know if the group here does, but what percentage of the population does have constipation? Do you know, David, is it high? I don't know the percentage, but I think of the two types, the irritable bowel, more of those people have constipation than the diarrhea wow. component. All right, moving on. Th this is something that I found really interesting, how people are kind of rebounding from getting off of Ozempic, Wegovy, the semi-glutide, did I say that right? I don't even know if I said that correctly, but the injections and the whatever they're doing, Ozempic, Wegovy. What's the new one I saw? Like Kilimanjaro or something? Did you see the Monjaro. new one? Monjaro. 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 Did they not name it after Mount Kilimanjaro? I don't know. So these are the magical weight loss drugs that were right. originally created for something else, like diabetes, et cetera, and, and lots now of people on these suckers. It. And then people feel like they have it under control, so they want to get off the medication, and then they have some kind of crazy rebound effects. So I figured you, you could tell us about that. I, it's kind of scary when I read about it. What do you think, Doc? This also gets back to the conversation we were just having about how our healthcare system doesn't really support some of the things that we really need. If you consider the idea of weight loss, almost all chronic diseases and cancers are worsened by obesity. So right. when someone comes into my office or a general practitioner's office and they're overweight, we know that they are a setup for their genetics, meaning are they going to get heart disease or all these different things, diabetes. And so weight reduction is a huge issue and it's a huge preventative issue, but the insurance companies don't really see it that way. And we all sort of know why.
the common denominator to these drugs are the, you said it, Anna, the semaglutides. And what they do is they increase the amount of insulin in your system, which helps regulate your glucose metabolism. They decrease your appetite by stimulating your leptin, which is a hormone in the brain that tells you to stop eating. They keep your stomach expanded a little bit longer after a meal so that you have that protracted period of feeling full. And they also increase, or I'm sorry, they decrease the hunger signals that come from your brain. So they do four different things and they all end up in the same place. And there are four products. One that we didn't mention was the oral form, which is ribelsis. But there's a reason why this conversation is even happening. Why would people now be stopping these medicines? There's a shortage and there's a shortage of these medicines because everyone's taken these medicines and for good reason, in my opinion. But again, they're very hard to access. Some insurance companies will cover Osempic because it was it got FDA approval. It was the first one that was really out there. And what they found were the diabetics taking these drugs were losing weight. So the insurance companies got on board with that. They recently got on board with Wagovi to start approving that for just weight loss. But the other two are not approved for weight loss. So if I were to prescribe that for somebody and they wanted the Manjaro, by the way, of the four products is the better one. And the reason it's the better one is that although they all decrease these hunger signals, Manjaro probably does that twice as good as the other ones. But again, if you have $1,500 a month to spend on Manjaro, come on down. But otherwise, it's, it's a problem. Uh, but to answer the question of what happens when you stop, so your insulin uh, levels change, so your blood sugar rises, diabetics get worse, their diabetes, which we see with increased uh, thirst and increased urination, fatigue, so those symptoms get worse in people. When your sugars go up, you're predisposed to fungal infections, and that's a potential right. problem. They did a study where they gave people these drugs for 17 months. And then they stopped the drug and they followed these people for a year. And at the end of the year, they found that two thirds of these people gained back the weight that they lost. Right. But that's not hard to understand because you have to adjust your eating, your exercise, your lifestyle. That was my question for you, Doc. Are they telling people, hey, you're taking this and this is really going to help with weight loss, with your insulin management, with whatever you got going on metabolically? but it would really help if you would cut out the foods that exacerbate those things. Do they tell people that? Or are they like, just take the injection, you'll be fine. We've been telling people this for probably 200 years, but the problem is, you know, what's behind this? Why can't people stay on these regiments? And the, the answer right. is in your brain chemistry. And there's right. another thing we've spoken about. These imbalanced brain chemistries in serotonin and dopamine work in different ways to keep people from pursuing these lifestyle changes that, that they need to make. People that have too few stimulating chemicals, neurotransmitters, those are the dopamine neurotransmitters, they eat to stay stimulated. This is built into their hard wiring. And those that have too few calming neurotransmitters, serotonin, they eat to soothe bad feelings. They're self-medicating with food. So these are natural reflexes that come from these brain chemistry imbalances. And you, you cannot just do behavioral modification 
to sustain or have durable change. You, you have to have the behavioral modification, but you have to, especially in people that are severely overweight or at high risk, you also have to look at their neurochemistry. And you can adjust serotonin and you can adjust dopamine levels pharmacologically. Okay. That was my, yeah, that was my question because I mean, listen, because I wrote the cookbooks that I write, I hear from a lot of people, particularly women, and they, they do struggle with like, I, it's hard to make the behavioral change. So you just illuminating that right there is so helpful. And I hope gives people some hope that there's other things that you can look at. Yeah. Like brain chemistry is is important. And I'm curious, David, when you come off these, because it's a rebound and we just talked about gut and biome, is your is your chemistry different? So when you come off it, you're now your gut's different. So that also weighs into this because you've been taking it. And I read the ne- their negative side effects, which is like facial aging. What does that mean? You take this thing and you look twenty no. years older. I, I've never seen that before described that way. Facial aging. There's changes in the fat tissue in your face, ah. and so things that would normally start drooping ten years from now, they start drooping ah. sooner. So Look you at see that. some from Ozempic, from all of these. I I am just vain enough to. I'd rather have the. <laughs> the I'd rather have a face with an ass as, as opposed to the no face and the no ass. You know what I'm saying? Wow. These facial changes are far more common in people that are morbidly obese. You don't really see these mm. in people that need to lose 25 pounds. Okay, because that makes sense. So, but what about the other part of it? When the cravings are they worse because there's a gut change when you stop, or is it exactly the same? The cravings aren't worse. Again, you can't change, you can't fool Mother Nature. You can't change the neurochemical issues you have in your brain with levels of these transmitters. So, that is always behind the scenes. So, unless you address that issue, you're going to fall off your program. And when you get off of these drugs, because there are negative side effects. Do you have to titrate down or do you stop all at once? Uh, no, you can just stop these drugs. I'm shocked at how many people I know that are on the go, you know, I lost 20 pounds. And then later on, you find out they're on Ozempic. Um, but there, I didn't realize there's nausea. There's, there's, there can be really bad nausea and other side effects that are really um, debilitating. Almost everyone gets nauseous in the first few doses or first few weeks of these medicines. And the reason for that is that one of the things that these medicines do is they expand your stomach after you've digested your food. They keep your stomach expanded. It's one of the things that triggers the leptin response in your brain that says, stop eating. But at the same time, by keeping your stomach expanded, people get nauseous and people can vomit. And that almost always goes away. People acclimate to that. I was going to say, or that's how you lose the weight. <laughs> well, there are a couple of things. It's the $1,500 you don't have to spend on food because you don't have it because you're spending it on a Zembic. Hey, Hal, you look great. You lost 30 pounds, but you look 50 years older. Congratulations. So there's, there's, there's that too. You win um, some, you lose some. And this just happened. This is fascinating. A blood test for concussions. And... I didn't realize that uh, the way they tested for concussions before was your doctor or the emergency room said, I think you have a concussion, and you kind of guessed from the gut, and then if you thought he had a concussion or she had a concussion, then we do a scan. But it really was up to like judging 
if they think you had a, a concussion. Is that accurate? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Peter. To, to diagnose a concussion, sometimes it's glaring because someone is unable to remember something or they're way off in their cognition or they have a huge bruise on the front of their head where they got hit. <laughs> it's just a giveaway. This is what happens in a concussion. So let's say you get hit in the front of your head and the brain is inside the skull and so the brain, which is on a stalk, which is the brain stem and the neck, the brain goes forward with this initial injury, and then it goes backwards. So it, it hits the inside, that's called the coup injury, and then it snaps back, that's the counter coup injury, and the back of the brain gets hit. So now you have two areas in the brain that are bruised. If we were to bruise your arm, say I hit you in the arm, Peter, really hard, and, and eventually you would have some swelling in your arm right, because it right, has right. plenty of room to go. The brain doesn't have that advantage. The brain is encapsulated. So where does that swelling go? Go. It goes inside. It goes internally. And so when that edema goes in internally and that inflammation goes internally, it hits certain parts of the brain. The, mm. the memory areas, the cognitive areas, the, the front of the brain is the frontal no lobe. That's where your cognition happens. And going towards the middle and back of the brain is where some of these memory centers are. So these are these are obvious signs of a concussion. But the you know what's great, by the way, when you said that and you said what the brain does, both Laurie and Anna made this face of like, oh, that's horrible. And uh, all I thought was, you know what that's called? First down and ten yards to go. <laughs> it's like every play, every yeah. play. Those in four guys. Is, oh my gosh! Yeah, right? it's next. Can you bring in Phil? Larry's on his way out. Wow! Wow! I mean, seriously. The the statistics are scary. You know that there's there's like a um, I think it's sixty five seventy thousand people die annually from concussions. That, that they and those didn't are know, they, those are reported. That, concussions. Oof, oof. And and so there must be so many more that are not reported. Uh, and the big the big issue in diagnosing this, yes, you can make a clinical assessment if you have, you know, these obvious things in front of you. Uh, but you're not going to really know the extent of that until you do a CAT scan. And the CAT scan will show bruising and bleeding. And so the beauty of this test is that you can do a blood test, you get your results in 18 minutes, it measures two proteins. Oh. If those proteins are elevated, then you are likely to have brain injury and you need a CAT scan. Well, if those, go ahead, Anna, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, that's great. Can we get this test? My my friend last week, I, I, she thinks she had a concussion. She was feeding the horse and she she's like, it was so dumb. I bent down and I knew I should have done that. And that literally the horse, the horse hit her head. lifted oh my his God. knee. I know. And then I was like, are you okay? Do I need to take you to the hospital? She's like, no, I just have a concussion. I'll be fine. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I would like to take her for this test. Well, yes, you can get this test. This test has been available in Europe since 21. So it's not a brand new test. It's oh, new okay. for us. By the way, why does it take that? That ticked me off a little bit too. If Europe can approve it in 21 and all these people are benefiting, why did it take us two more years to approve it? Europeans have a very different assessment process. In the United States, we're very careful about doing all these studies and trials. And so we get the information from Europe, and then we start putting it into these clinical trials, and we come up with the same understanding. But So that's, that's an answer to that question. Uh, but if you think about 
the advantages now of having these tests. Think about the parents that have their kids playing high school sports. Think about the professional teams, football, soccer, boxing. If you look at, if you look at these sports and you have this test, you can certainly figure out who is appropriate for going for these CT scans, who isn't. We would probably save, it's estimated that we would probably save 40% of the CT examinations just by doing this test because it could rule out these people. There's this very interesting story, which I, I bet you all are aware of. It was this uh, Miami quarterback, Tunga Vailoa. This is a Hawaiian mm-hmm. uh, man that was quarterback for, for Miami. He got a concussion in the Bills game. And then four days later, they were playing the Bengals. Now, he was taken out of the Bills game because he got hit in the head. So four days later, they're now playing the Bengals and he's back in there. And it wasn't long before he was hit again. And what was interesting about that is that he he showed this fencing response. And a fencing response, I'm, I'm gonna give you a picture of what this looks like. And it's a primal response that infants get when they have brain injury. This is something, if we see, infants and newborns doing this, we know that there's some injury to the brain and what that response is, and it's exactly what it sounds like. One arm goes straight out, the other arm is flexed behind the head, and the head turns towards the extended arm. That's the fencing reflex. And this gentleman showed that immediately. They knew well enough that this guy was in trouble, and in fact, he was in trouble. And then if you look at the long-term effects of, of these concussions, people over time get enough injury, they get these traumatic brain injuries, and people with traumatic brain injuries, we've all learned, get depressed. Suicide rates are much higher in this group. They have cognitive changes. So this is really an important thing for us to know as parents and for those people that are running these sports teams. It, it's a great metric. And is this a, is it an affordable test too? And does everybody have, is it accessible everywhere right now? It should be accessible now everywhere. I mean, it's been FDA approved and I don't understand why it wouldn't be. That is a game changer. So that's great. Great that that happened. Uh, We've got a caller. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Tyler and I was watching the news the other night and they were talking about a double lung transplant, which sounded kind of amazing. But I was wondering, is this something that was done in the past or is it brand new? Thanks for taking my question. Tyler, a great question. And what's new about the double lung transplant in this story is that this was done for cancer treatment. And they've not done this successfully for cancer treatment because what they were doing in the past, and by the way, these were done uh, in Chicago. And The reason that these were not successful in the past, they did single lung transplants and they would take out the cancerous lung and put in a new lung, but the new lung would get the cancer cells from the other lung that was still there. And so they never worked. This is really groundbreaking because what they do now is they take out the two bad lungs that have cancer and they put in the two good lungs and they hook this up through the bronchus and through the blood vessels and they've had great success with this. These were done, the first one was done, I think, in 21, and the second one was done several months ago, and these people are still living, and they're, they're doing fine. There are limitations to this. You 
you can't do this on someone that has metastatic cancer. If there's cancer cells in other parts of the body, they're going to end up in your new lungs. Uh, if people can't take immunosuppressive drugs, which we have to take when there's a transplant, this keeps your own immune system from rejecting the new tissue. So people that are unable to take those drugs, they're not candidates. So it's a very small population that becomes eligible for this. But if you think about it, it's a really interesting way to do this. During COVID, by the way, this was done several times for people that had terminal lung disease from this infection. Jeez. They gave these people new lungs and it worked. Is this a tough uh, procedure? I would assume. Yes. <laughs> Simply stated, yes. And one might ask the question, well, what happens in this surgery? So you take out this guy's two lungs. Now he has no lungs. How is he getting oxygen to his system? The answer to that is you're put on what's called a heart-lung machine, which takes your blood, puts it in this machine. The machines fill it with oxygen and put it back in the system. So the machine acts as your lung. But that's a question that ultimately comes up. Wait a minute. Jeez. <laughs> take Can I ask a question about that, which, is, which I've heard... And it's anecdotal. When people are on a heart lung machine doing heart surgery, doing this kind of surgery, the longer you're on, the better chance, the bigger the chances when you come off that there's a depression that happens and they don't know why it happens, but they do know it is an outcome from putting people on a heart lung machine. Is that a thing? No, it's absolutely true. And this happens in cardiac bypass surgeries because they're on this machine for a long time. We don't know the real answer to this. What we think might be happening is that the red blood cells that are going through this machine are somehow getting damaged. And then when they come back and you've got your new heart and this new system, you don't have the same capacity in these in your red cells that you did going into this surgery. So, that's, so that's do you know thing. going in that this is going to happen? Do you get? Are you prepared to treat the person for depression coming out? Aside from the fact that they had a major surgery and that they were vulnerable, how do you prepare them for the depression that's going to happen? Because I hear it can be pretty big and last for months. So that's another very interesting question, Peter. And the answer is yes, you do tell people about this. And the depression tends to come three months after the surgery. It doesn't happen right away. It takes a few months. And this also happens with other major surgeries. When people go through major surgery, a few months later, they're depressed. Many people now, many, many clinicians will start treating people on from these surgeries immediately with antidepressants. Because if you think about it, someone that's depressed has a dysfunction of their immune response. Mm. So you're now, you're now doing this major surgery, you've impaired their immune system. So starting Jeez. these antidepressants early is something that people are doing. Amazing. So it does happen. And it, does it happen to almost everybody? It happens to almost everybody. You can't really? make that surgery 15 minutes. It's a long surgery. So the question is, why does that depression happen? And there are a couple different theories. One is that the microbiome gets changed. Another is that people for the first few months, they're struggling to just recover. They're struggling to get out of bed and walk 15 feet. And at a certain point, it's usually a few months, they're now sitting there realizing what just happened to them. And that's depressing. Listen up, folks. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, go see us at bedsidematters.org. Leave us a card, a letter, a message, be a caller, whatever you want. And your question just might get answered by our very own Dr. David Kipper. To recap, we talked about laxatives and dimension. What did we learn? Travel with Difaxin. 
uh, we learned what happens when you stop the weight loss drugs and why. There's a, a good chance you're going to rebound and gain the weight back. They now have a blood test for concussions that Europe had, and there are lungs available um, and, and for, cancer, for cancer victims, which is pretty stunning. So pretty amazing. David, thank you very much. Anna, thank you. Producer Lori, thank, thank you. you very much. And most importantly, thank you for listening. You have a question, as Anna said, reach out to us. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.